Had Elizabeth's opinion been all drawn from her own family, she could not have formed a very pleasing opinion of conjugal felicity or domestic comfort. I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. Up until now, we've been in the same room when we recorded our episodes. With the COVID-19 situation, that's not possible at the moment, so we're doing it from two different locations in Sydney. We're looking at chapters 42 to 46 of Pride and Prejudice. Can you summarise these chapters in a sentence? I'll have a go. When Elizabeth visits Pemberley, hears the housekeeper's opinion of Darcy and is welcomed by him with great courtesy, she begins to feel that a future marriage is possible, a hope which is dashed when the news arrives that Lydia has eloped with Wickham. With that one, I've only got one and, but I've got no quotes. Okay. The gardeners take Elizabeth with them on a tour of Derbyshire, during which time they are shown around Pembley by the housekeeper who praises Mr Darcy, and when the owner himself appears, even though they'd been assured of his absence, Elizabeth is embarrassed but surprised by his change in manner especially when he wants to introduce his sister to her. So after two days of social interaction with the Darcys and the Bingleys who are visiting them, everything is looking lovely, but it's destroyed when Elizabeth receives the dreadful news from Longbourn that Lydia has run off with Wickham. So that had two ends in it, but it had three Jane Austenisms. Well, also, it tells a whole lot of stuff I didn't tell. But yeah. anyway, there it is. We're not really competing, are we? No. And in fact, I think these chapters were less eventful than some of the others, even though the visit to Pemberley chapter is the second longest chapter in the book. The only one that's longer is the Netherfield Ball, and that's only one page longer, at least in my edition. Right. I wanted to point out again that little introductory piece which gives you various generalisations about the Bennett family. And she keeps introducing these at the beginning of a lot of incidents. And I keep wondering, you know, is this something she's planned or did she have perhaps a whole long account of the Bennett family and cut it up mm. um, to produce the information? Yeah, it's kind of odd that you build up this picture, particularly of Mr and Mrs Bennett's relationship, or you've got a very, very clear picture of it right at the very start of the book, but then you just get this extra corroborative information just as you said, yeah. in the little snippets at the beginning of chapters. And if you were going back to look for it in the book, you might remember that there was the piece about Mrs. Bennett's weak understanding and illiberal mind and Mr. Bennett losing interest, but you wouldn't necessarily remember where it was in the book. Yes. Anyway, and that's just a comment. I can't draw any conclusions from it, except that it's interesting and it certainly mm -hmm. isn't a bother as you go through. No, it's no. Nice little clearing of the throat to say, right, I'm going on to something a bit new now. Yeah. But one thing that's always, always struck me is this incredibly minimalist way Darcy is introduced. So what you have is they've been going around Pemberley and they've been shown it by the housekeeper and she's talked to them and you're getting descriptions of Pemberley. And then it says, as they walked across the hall towards the river, Elizabeth turned back to look again. Her uncle and aunt stopped also, and while the former was conjecturing as to the date of the building, the owner of it himself suddenly came forward from the road which led behind it to the stables. If you're reading carelessly, and I often read carelessly, you could completely miss that, particularly because it says the owner of it himself rather than Mr Darcy, so there's nothing to catch your eye in that paragraph. All right, yes. You've had all this assurance that he's not going to be there, 
first she's asked the maid at, at the inn at Matlock, and then they've asked the housekeeper, and everyone said he's not here. And you kind of, I guess, as you read it, you're sort of expecting that maybe he'll turn up, but maybe he won't. But just it's slid in so quietly, you you could miss it and go on to the next paragraph without noticing that Mr. Darcy's turned up. It's just a very odd way to do it. Instead hmm. of saying, and she looked over and there, surprise, surprise, was Mr. Darcy. <laughs> it's a very quiet way, isn't it? Yes. One of the things I find quite fascinating in these chapters is the way it displays Jane Austen's knowledge of current ideas about what was proper in architecture and landscape gardening and that sort of thing. And when she describes going through Pemberley, she says in one place, every disposition of the ground was good. And she looked on the whole scene, the river, the trees scattered on its banks and the winding of the valley as far as she could trace it with delight. As they passed into other rooms, these objects were taking different positions, but from every window there were beauties to be seen. Now, this seems to me to fit extremely well with the whole theory behind landscape gardening, that everywhere you stood, you ought to have a lovely prospect. You ought to be able to see things in a beautiful way. And so that's one of the things I find interesting that she had taken up so strongly, these particular views of landscaping. Yeah, that also fits in with something I'd highlighted that I thought was an interesting point she made, which is where Elizabeth compares Pemberley to Rosings. The rooms were lofty and handsome and their furniture suitable to the fortune of its proprietor. But Elizabeth saw with admiration of his taste that it was neither gaudy nor uselessly fine with less of splendour and more of real elegance than the furniture of Rosings. So again, I think that fits in with what you were saying, that she has this expectation that everyone knows what the rules of good taste are, and some things are good taste and some things are less. Mm. And she knows it and everyone knows it. Yeah, well, everyone except Lady Catherine de Bourgh, apparently. No, well, she was trying, but she didn't yeah. do it well. Mm -hmm. I had a vague idea that I'd read somewhere once that Pemberley was basically a rebadging of Chatsworth House, which is this vast estate in Derbyshire. Apparently the house has over 120 rooms and the grounds are 35,000 acres, which I'm sure is more than the 10 miles around Pemberley is meant to be. So I did a bit of research to find out if I'd made this up or if there was some basis for it. There was a paper presented by Donald Green, who's a literary critic. He refers back to the 1960s when Elizabeth Jenkins, who I gather had written about Jane Austen. She was one of the first to really write seriously about her. Well, she was apparently visiting the Rutland Arms Hotel in Bakewell and found this little sign in the room saying that Jane Austen had stayed in this room and written some of Pride and Prejudice while she was here and that the estate of Pemberley is obviously based on Chatsworth. Elizabeth Jenkins was outraged by this because she just felt it was completely ridiculous. She checked with Dr Chapman, who, of course, had edited a lot of Jane Austen's work, including her letters, and Chapman said there's no evidence that Jane Austen was ever north of the Trent. Um, I don't know if anything has come up in more recent research in her life. In 1796 and 1797, when she was writing First Impressions, she had never travelled further north than London. There was no way she could have been in Derbyshire. She'd never even been as far north as Hertfordshire. She did go a bit further north in 1806 when they visited relations on the western side of England. 
But even then, the farthest north they went was in the south of Staffordshire. And this is why, of course, Dr Chapman said they never went north of the Trent. So Elizabeth Jenkins actually spoke to the Jane Austen Society and they put it on record that the committee found the notice in this room entirely without foundation. Donald Green, in his article, argues that from his visit to Chatsworth, so much of what you see in Chatsworth does fit with the description of Pemberley. And so he thinks that at some time or other, one feels Jane Austen must have visited Chatsworth herself. My view on this is that she didn't visit Chatsworth, but that she read guidebooks, because this is the period when lots of people had started doing what the gardeners do, which was to travel around these big country houses. Then as a result of people starting to do this, more and more other people were then writing up their travels and producing guidebooks. I met somebody once who had done a a search of the Lyme Regis guidebooks and compared them with the descriptions in Persuasion, and it found quite a lot of semi-parallel passages if she read guidebooks for Lyme Regis, which she'd actually been to herself. There's nothing to say that she wasn't reading guidebooks and saying that's what Pemberley would have been like and making her own picture of it. Mm. Donald Green, he says there's more detail than he would have expected to see in a guidebook. Well, I'd have thought some guidebooks might. Also, as you said, the standards of landscape gardening were were becoming very embedded. And so some of the descriptions could just have been of how you would landscape a country house. Yes. Also, of course, she probably knew people like the gardeners who had been doing these tours and listening Mm. to them tell about it. Mm even seen sketches of it taken by some of her friends. Mm. One of the many big arguments Elizabeth Jenkins had on the idea of Pemberley equals Chatsworth is that Darcy's income of £10,000 a year wouldn't have been enough to support anywhere as vast as Chatsworth. The Dukes of Devonshire who owned Chatsworth had far, far higher income than that. It could just be that perhaps Jane Austen drew on Chatsworth as the appropriate kind of property for the Derbyshire area. But that doesn't mean that Pembley is meant to be the same as Chatsworth. And it also doesn't mean that Jane Austen must have visited Chatsworth because there were plenty of other resources for her to use. Yes, she wants to give Darcy the best she can give him for his 10,000 a year. Mm. And so she picks out all the really nice things, shrinks them down, and that's Darcy's house. Mm. Something else I wanted to talk about with these chapters is Georgiana Darcy. Yes. Because first of all is the thing that before Georgiana has even arrived, Darcy tells Elizabeth that Georgiana wants to meet her. He says, there is also one other person in the party who more particularly wishes to be known to you. Will you allow me or do I ask too much to introduce my sister to your acquaintance during your stay at Lambton? He surely hasn't even mentioned Elizabeth to Georgiana at this stage because really, what would he say that I met this woman and I really liked her and I proposed marriage and she said no? I really think when he's saying that Georgiana particularly wishes to be known to you, he's just projecting on her. And then when she does arrive the next morning, she barely has time to wash her hands before he drags her off to the inn at Lambton to be introduced. Yes. It's like he's terrified that if he doesn't do this quickly, Elizabeth will go away again. Yes. (laughs) I think it's quite interesting to compare Georgiana Darcy with Anne de Burke. Because they're both, I didn't actually pick up on this myself. I read it in John Mullen's book, What Matters in Jane Austen. And he points out that 
neither Anne de Berg nor Georgiana Darcy actually has any dialogue at all in the book. But the presentation of Anne de Berg is very negative, as we said yeah. a couple of weeks ago. We, we don't know anything about her, so you get this negative presentation, but we really don't know what she's like. Whereas Georgiana Darcy, who is equally silent, it's this much, much more sympathetic presentation. Um, Elizabeth is so much more willing to believe she's just shy. But also what you see is Lady Catherine doesn't let Anne get a word in edgewise, whereas Darcy is really trying to encourage Georgiana out of her shyness. So, you know, he, he kind of nudges her to invite Elizabeth to come have dinner with them. Then also her governess encourages her to talk. So you, know, you sort of see that Darcy and the governess are really trying to encourage Georgiana to overcome her shyness and become less of a schoolgirl and more of... Well, in a sense, she's in the process of being brought out. Mm. Poor old Mr Burr. Yes, yeah, she never gets a chance to say a word, does she? She mm. nods and she curtsies and that sort of thing but never actually says anything. Mm. After they leave, Miss Bingley starts criticising Elizabeth's person, behaviour and dress. Isn't that when we come up to Darcy's big put-down of Miss Bingley's? Well, she says, I believe you thought her rather pretty at one time. And yes, replied Darcy, who could contain himself no longer, but that was only when I first saw her, for it is many months since I have considered her as one of the handsomest women of my acquaintance. I think that's a fantastic put-down. Yes. He then went away and Miss Bingley was left to all the satisfaction of having forced him to say what gave no one any pain but herself. I actually considered having that as my favourite sentence for this section. Well, I was just thinking now perhaps I should have picked that one. Yes. <laughs> it's an absolutely classic one in the book, isn't it? Yeah, yes. Just at one point I'm thinking... Why did the gardeners take Elizabeth and not Jane? Was it just there wasn't room? Because at the beginning of that section, Elizabeth is thinking, oh, dear, oh, dear, I haven't got Jane with me. How wonderful it would be if Jane was with me. And, you know, you wonder, well, why didn't they take her? Possibly they wanted someone reliable to keep an eye on the children. They didn't want to just leave the children under the, under the control of Mrs Bennet. Were the children left with the Bennets? Yes. Yes. The children were to be left under the particular care of their cousin Jane, who was their general favourite. Yes, and also, of course, Jane had had the time in London. Mm. But it's still, it's sort of surprising that she's mourning for Jane when you think, well, if they could fit the four children in the carriage, <laughs> why couldn't they fit Jane? Mm. One thing we haven't really talked about, because, of course, the, the main focus of these chapters is the visit to Pembley and the reconnection with Darcy and meeting Miss Bingley, but, of course, the chapters finish with Jane's letters to Elizabeth about Lydia. I guess you have this slightly contrived plot that Elizabeth doesn't receive Jane's first letter because she addressed it badly and it was misdirected, yes. so she gets them one after another. But those letters that she writes, they're so Jane in always wanting to believe the best of everyone. Yes. Just before we wind up, though, I do want to talk just a little bit about the way it ends and Jane's letters and... I mean, I guess I don't have a lot specifically to say about them. It's just we've been talking about Pembley and everyone else, but it does finish on this moment that in some ways is maybe not the climax of the book, but it's one of the key turning points of the book because yes. you see Elizabeth actually bursting into tears, which is probably the only time it happens in the book because she's she's absolutely certain that 
they haven't gone off to get married, even though Jane still seems very convinced that they have. And eat. But then you also have the moment where Elizabeth thinks that her appeal to Darcy must be sinking under such a proof of family weakness and such an assurance of the deepest disgrace. Yes. And then it says, and never had she so honestly felt that she could have loved him as yes. now when all love must be vain. Well, she just feels because she's quite sure that they're not going to get married. So she's convinced that they'll have this stain on their family. Mm. And almost would she be prepared to marry him when she feels so bad? But in fact, of course, it would never have been as, as significant as that. Mm. No, it, well, it's just she just feels, how could he ever marry me when he knows this about Lydia? How could mm. I ever marry him? and take this disgrace with me into another family. I mm. think that's she's thinking that at the end. So what was your favourite sentence from these chapters? Oh, well, my favourite sentence takes us back to all this concern about landscaping. It was a large, handsome stone building, standing well on rising ground and backed by a ridge of high woody hills and in front a stream of some natural importance was swelled into greater but without any artificial appearance where she's sort of more or less explaining what landscaping should do. It should look as though it was absolutely natural mm. but it has been manipulated as, in fact, this stream has been pulled out to make a lake in front of the house. Mm. But it doesn't look as though that's happened, mm. which is you know, one of the classic things that the landscapers did, move trees around, made waterfalls where there weren't any, made things that looked like rivers that, in fact, just disappeared at the end of the horizon. Mm. She's very aware of what landscapers do and what their rules are. Mm. which is just this little piece. I find it favourite because it just shows the amount of expertise she's got and how elegantly she can fit it into one of her normal sentences. Well, my favourite sentence is, Miss Darcy looked as if she wished for courage enough to join in it and sometimes did venture a short sentence when there was least danger of it being heard, which, again, I think is just such a lovely description of she wants to join in, but... It's just terribly sweet, isn't it? Funny, yes. 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 So the character we're going to talk about this episode is Elizabeth. And I think possibly a good starting point is the fact that I suspect she is far and away the most popular of all Jane Austen's heroines. And I just thought maybe we could explore what it is about her that makes her the most popular. Well, I think it's partly to do with the fact that she is so witty. None of the other Austen heroines are really witty at all. Emma tries to be, but she isn't. But mm. I don't think you find that sort of liveliness and wit with any of the others. I think there's only one other character who has that sort of wit, and that's Mary Crawford. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Because I was thinking about this and sort of, You've kind of got this division with the characters, a very loose division, where you've got the sort of quiet, introspective ones, which are Eleanor, Fanny, Anne Elliot, and also Jane Fairfax. And then you've got the much more outgoing ones, which is Elizabeth and Emma, and kind of Marianne, although I think there's a lot more difference between Elizabeth and Emma and Marianne than there is between the various quiet ones, um, because Marianne... 
She's certainly outgoing, but she's passionate and rather than witty. Yes, I think that's it. She's terribly self-revelatory, whereas mm. the quietness of the others is, in a sense, putting up a shield against the world. Yeah. Whereas Marianne is as open as possible to the world, mm. for letting but, people know her feelings. I think you, you make a good point about the difference between Elizabeth and Emma is that Emma just doesn't have Elizabeth's wit. She's much more... I don't, I don't know how to describe what Emma is in comparison to Elizabeth, other than all the negatives I can think of, that she's much more of a snob, she's, she's much more about managing other people. Elizabeth doesn't really seem to want to manage other people. She just wants to watch other people manage themselves. I just wonder if one of the things with Emma, though, too, is like Marianne. She is terribly open about what she thinks. Mm. She's never putting up a barrier. True. And Elizabeth does, as I said the other week, she does perform in public. What you see in public is what you see in private. But at the same time, she still follows all the social mores, which Marianne completely doesn't, um, yes. in terms of being polite to people. I don't think there's any any similarity, really, between Elizabeth and Marianne, except a few adjectives that apply to both of them. And their appeal is so totally. No, it's not, actually, now I think about it. One of the interesting things is we do follow Elizabeth's emotions. And, of course, they do that lovely trajectory, the sort of Beatrice and Benedict trajectory of she hates him, she hates him, through to she loves him. Mm. But her emotions are from the very beginning, even though it's not a love at first sight, her emotions are connected with Darcy from the moment the story begins mm. because that's by hating him. Can we just talk a little bit more about... Elizabeth and Mary Crawford because when I think about it I think Mary Crawford is the character in Jane Austen who Elizabeth is most like and yet Elizabeth is the heroine and Mary Crawford is well she's the foil yes I can still remember having a conversation about Mansfield Park and saying now what would it have been like for Fanny if Mary Crawford had not been Mary Crawford but Elizabeth Bennet what mm. would Fanny's fate have been then yes I would say Fanny would have had no chance because I think the, the key difference between Mary Crawford and Elizabeth is, as with, with Mansfield Park, generally it's the principal thing. Elizabeth is completely principled. Mary Crawford, she can make some bad jokes because she doesn't quite get the sensibilities of the people she's talking to, which Elizabeth never does. Mary Crawford has this wonderful, loving, outgoing thing as she always wants people to feel happy you mean like the time Mrs Norris is mean to Fanny and Mary Crawford immediately gets up and sits next to Fanny and talks to her and is nice to her? Yes. So what is it about her that makes her different from Elizabeth in a negative way, that makes her the foil rather than the heroine? I think it's the lack of principle. It's mm. what, what Elizabeth says is the matter with Lydia. She'd never been taught to think seriously. She hadn't had any formed principles and it was bad education. So that's why, basically, Lydia doesn't actually ever really see what she did wrong living with Wickham before they were married, whereas Elizabeth does and Jane Austen does. And similarly, Mary Crawford is only concerned about the external appearance of Mrs Rushworth and Henry Crawford having an affair. She doesn't actually have any concerns with the fact that what they're doing is morally wrong. Yes, and um, which, of course, is principles it gets harder and harder every decade to approve of. Step back into Elizabeth's world, 
and with the principles about being married and so on, has so completely gone out the window now. It's sort of a real imaginative leap to see that as the same principles as not hurting people or betraying people. Whereas for them, those beliefs were so deeply embedded as principles. So I guess that then really is why it's, for a modern reader, so much more difficult to not necessarily to see the difference between Elizabeth and Mary Crawford, but to agree with the difference. I think so, yes. So I guess in summary then we're saying that we think the reason Elizabeth is the most popular is because she's clever, she's funny, she's witty, all of which are also true of Mary Crawford and not so much true of the other Jane Austen heroines. So that's what sets Elizabeth apart from the other heroines and what sets her apart from Mary Crawford is something she has in common with all the other heroines, which is her strong principles by the lights of the 1810s, even if that's not necessarily the same as strong principles by the lights of the 2020s. Yes. I think probably also we ought to remember that the other thing is Elizabeth has a rich, good-looking, rather exciting hero and she marries him. So Mm. that makes the whole book totally satisfactory when you've finished it. She's not as much a Cinderella as Fanny Price is. On the other hand, as we talked about when we were talking about Darcy, that a lot of people see him as their favourite hero, even though there's a lot of actual flaws to his character, he still has the kind of magnificence, the most, he, the most fairy, more of a fairy prince than Edmund is. So Elizabeth does manage to combine being witty and clever, but also because of her wittiness and cleverness, she is picked, she is chosen of all the other women Darcy has met, and particularly of all the other women in the Meryton area, of which she is clearly so much better than, she's the one he's chosen to be mistress of Pemberley. And Pemberley is the real prize. Nobody else in that area has ever had a chance of marrying somebody at Darcy's level of richness. Yeah. And social position and everything else like that. Yeah. So she also has, from a social and material perspective, she certainly has the biggest leap of any of the heroines. Yes, yes. And I also think... It's one of the most socially distanced in terms of the amount of leap, but in terms of the relationship, it's perhaps one of the most equal in that Knightley is always going to have this semi-paternal relationship with Emma. And similarly, Edmund and Fanny, even though they're much closer in age because he's guided her thinking since she was a child, again, she's it's not necessarily going to be a, an equal relationship. But, oh, no, that's but, not fair because Anne and Wentworth no, are going to have an equal no, relationship. Anne, I was just going to say that, Anne and Wentworth, but still not that sense that they're going to be doing things to one another. I mean, I think it's in Chapter 50 I looked up just recently. That's where she says she thinks they would do so much for one another. Yeah, it says she began now to comprehend that he was exactly the man who in disposition and talents would most suit her. His understanding and temper, though unlike her own, would have answered all her wishes. It was a union that must have been to the advantage of both. By her ease and liveliness, his mind might have been softened, his manners improved, and from his judgment, information and knowledge of the world, she must have received benefit of greater importance. I mean, I think that Elizabeth comes to the conclusion, and so does Mrs Gardner even earlier, that they will be extremely good for one another. They will balance one another. Yes. As we said when we were talking about Darcy, that in some ways Elizabeth will make Darcy more socially adept in the same way that 
Charlotte Lucas, well, Charlotte Collins will make Mr. Collins a bit more socially adept. But of course, Elizabeth is working with something so much better than Mr. Collins. But yeah, what we didn't yes. say is also, even though Elizabeth says that Darcy will change her for the better, I don't feel reading the book that Elizabeth needs to be changed as much as Darcy does. Elizabeth already interacts well in company. Possibly she's a little too inclined to privately laugh at people and perhaps a little too inclined to think that she is the most intelligent person in the room, mainly because for most of her life she has been the most intelligent person in the room. And again, maybe she's been that little bit too influenced by her father, again, in terms of just laughing at everyone. And I guess being with Darcy may stabilise that a bit because he's also on an intellectual par but isn't laughing at everyone. But I still feel he has undergone greater growth throughout the book and will continue to undergo greater growth throughout the marriage than she will. That's possible, yes. I mean, there is one of those things, though, again, what you said about Elizabeth really feeling almost cleverer than anyone else, but also, like Mary, she really does want to do some deep thinking, but Mm. she doesn't want to do it at Mary's level. She wants to be able to have those sort of conversations or discussions or thoughts, but with somebody who's her equal or who takes it much more seriously and Mm. from a much more sophisticated point of view, which Darcy does. Mm. That we never hear him do it. (laughs) All we know is that he does. We think that we think they'll be they'll do well together. Yeah. One observation I had, if you just read those chapters we've looked at, just as Elizabeth falling in love with Darcy, you can almost look at it as we would Charlotte Lucas sizing up Mr. Collins. We've known from the very beginning that she wants to get married. She knows she wants to get married. She checks out Wickham. She checks out Colonel. She checks them out, decides she hasn't got enough money for them. They're out. But here comes Mr. Darcy. It's as though she's got the best job of her anyone could have. And So then she's trying to think, yes, but are there disadvantages? Well, she's got disadvantages to start with. But then even before the disadvantages, she sees the advantages, even before she leaves Kent. It says Elizabeth could not see Lady Catherine without recollecting that had she chosen it, she might by this time have been presented to her as her future niece. And she thinks this when she sees Pemberley. She thinks all this could have been mine. So she sort of sees all the social advantages and then she does a sort of a checklist through the disadvantages. First of all, she thought he was unprincipled, but she's read his letter and realised, no, he's not unprincipled. Up until the moment of the proposal, I don't think she's really been weighing Darcy up as a possibility because she completely dismissed him right at the start for his rudeness. That moment at the Meriton Assembly... That took him right off the table, possibly before she'd even really started thinking of him as as a potential husband. He was rude and she decided she didn't like him and so not negotiable anymore, not an option. And then that is, of course, built on strongly when Wickham tells her all about how badly he's behaved towards Wickham. He's Mm. not just proud, but he's, in effect, been unprincipled in Mm. rejecting his father's wishes. Yes, And so that's got to be got rid of. Well, the letter gets rid of that problem. Mm. Then she also thinks he has a very bad temper. 
when she talks to the housekeeper and the housekeeper says, no, he has such a sweet temper. He's a wonderful landlord. So that one's sorted out. Because it does, in fact, say after the housekeeper has been talking that this was praise of all others most extraordinary, most opposite to her ideas. That he was not a good-tempered man had been her firmest opinion. And I think that's actually the first time we see that she's thought of him as not good-tempered. Up until then, my impression would be she thinks of him as rude, she thinks of him as not a good conversationalist, but not good-tempered isn't such... I haven't, you haven't seen him lose his temper with anyone up till then. No, but there's that discussion where he says how he holds resentments against people, that he holds these very strong resentments. They have that discussion when they're at the Bingleys. Yep. So there's that side of him. And so the housekeeper deals with that. Then the next objection, she thinks, oh, if I'd been married to him, I could have been showing the gardeners or inviting them into the house. And then she thinks, no, but I'd never been allowed to invite them. Mm. And then that gets disproved when Darcy behaves so nicely to them. Mm. And then you know, later on, of course, that their minds get on very well together and that the final piece where she thinks they would have been perfect for one another. Mm. So she she goes through all that. But even before that, he has been on her mind. I mean, it's what she and Wickham talk about. So I think, and, yeah, Darcy is as much on Wickham's mind as, she, as he is on Elizabeth's because Wickham is often the one in their last conversation before Wickham heads off to Brighton. Wickham is the one who actively brings up Darcy and Elizabeth is the one who tries to shut it down. I think Wickham plays a big part. If it wasn't for Wickham, she wouldn't think anything like as much about Darcy. She'd be thinking about Jane and Bingley and not about Darcy. But Wickham keeps her thoughts on Darcy and so she observes him more. So, I mean, I think Wickham plays a big part in preparing Elizabeth to be in love with Darcy when the time comes mm. because he's got her thinking about him all this time. Mm. Jane Austen offers her the opportunity to do a Charlotte Lucas mm. when she comes to Pemberley and she can check off all these things that could be disadvantages and they aren't. You know, she's totally receptive to this wonderful, wonderful job offer. Mm. But I think the big difference is Charlotte's checklist is purely to do with the establishment, much less to do with the man, whereas yep. Elizabeth's checklist is, well, I guess this does lead to the bit that comes up later after these chapters when Jane asks when Elizabeth first fell in love with Darcy and she says it's when I first saw his estate at Pemberley, which does sort of lead a lot of a lot of readers to think, well, is she in love with him or is she in fact just doing a Charlotte Lucas and marrying purely for the establishment. But I think the visit to Pemberley chapter does, as you pointed out, she works through all the personal things. Yes. There's a passage that I think gives an insight into Elizabeth's changed feelings for Darcy, which is in the section we're looking at today, where it says, if gratitude and esteem are good foundations of affection, Elizabeth's change of sentiment will be neither improbable nor faulty. But if otherwise... If regard springing from such sources is unreasonable or unnatural in comparison of what is so often described as arising on a first interview with its object, and even before two words have been exchanged, nothing can be said in her defence except that she had given somewhat of a trial to the latter method in her partiality for Wickham, and that its ill success might perhaps authorise her to seek the other less interesting mode of attachment. So that, I think, is... Jane Austen really drawing a difference between love at first sight versus love based on knowing someone better. Gratitude and esteem are two different things. You've got 
got respect and you've also got acknowledgement that they're gratitude, they're a good person. I think the gratitude simply means gratitude to that person for having fallen in love with her. Mm -hmm. So basically we're saying that when she talks about seeing his great estate at Pemberley, that is a joke. That's not why she loves him, but it's not entirely not why she loves him. It's a factor, but it's only a relatively small factor, except, of course, that it was during the visit. She had reached a state where she didn't hate him anymore before that visit, but it was during that visit when she got to correct all the misapprehensions on her checklist and also just see him at his most relaxed and most natural that she realised she could love him. Yes. What I've chosen to talk about in this historical background segment in this session is the landed gentry because it fits so much with what we've been talking about, Pemberley and so on. And so what you know one realises is the background to Jane Austen is that the landed gentry had had a century of growing richer and richer and richer. On one side, there'd been the rise of the empire, which meant any spare money they had could be invested and get really wonderful returns. But even more than that, there were a whole lot of changes that had been implemented by themselves, which improved the actual income they got from their property. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is what was called the agrarian revolution. And this was founded very much from the top down. And they made agricultural experimentation a fashionable pastime. They even got no big magazines started, sort of research centres or at least uh, model farms trying things out. And some of the main changes that it brought about to improve farming was, first of all, they got new farm machinery like Jethro Tull's drill and an iron plough. And they went in for breeding of improved animals and horses and cattle. Some of this is sort of also the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. The Agrarian Revolution and the Industrial Revolution are kind of connected. They're one after the other. The Industrial Revolution is really only starting with the steam engine and so on. But one thing that sort of had a big impact was what was called the enclosures, Mm. which came about because they'd worked out different ways of farming that involved the rotation of crops. And what it involved was the landlords trying to get together all the land that they'd rented out to various people, which tended to be scattered all over the parish or all over their land, and pulling it together into sort of fenced farms with just one person in charge and Mm -hmm. this farm in the middle. What happened to all the people who'd been doing the little farms that then got pulled together? Well, some of them missed out, but the farms were let on quite long tendencies to individual people, which Mm -hmm. was why with these enclosures, they were expensive to do because they had to get an act through Parliament. Mm -hmm. And some was appointed by Parliament to come out and look at what was happening and say if it was fair or not. Mm. But as a result, there were a large group of people who had rented a tiny bit of land, but mostly lived on the common land. And they tended to lose their land. And also, as part of the enclosures, there was a lot of land that was called waste land. And there was also quite a bit of common land. And sometimes the landowners managed to enclose that in some of these farms that they were renting out. 
And the farms then, because of the new agriculture, became more and more productive, so their rents from them got higher. And so they really became very well off. But you did have a free strata farming population. You had the landowners who owned the land. You had the tenant farmers who organised all the production. And then the day labourers who got hired to do the work. And that's the way Pemberley would have all been organised, the way Mr Bennett's property would have been organised. And in Emma, Mr Martin, he would be... Mr Martin would have been a tenant farmer Mm -hmm. and he would have been one of the best of them. Mm -hmm. Quite a lot of the landowners tended to have what they called their home farm, to which all the produce came to them. And it sounds as though Mr Bennett had one of those because now he needs the horses for the farm. Yeah. But he would have had other land that was let out to tenant farmers. What it just meant was that the landed gentry were getting more and more money. They were still carrying on their old way of life. The land still passed from generation to generation in the same way. And as they had a lot more money, the settlements would be fancier because there were investments to be handed on as well as property. Mm. And they kept on passing their time in the same way basically hunting, shooting and fishing and visiting one another, which Mm. is what they mainly did in the country. But also because of this extra money, that's where you had this huge building boom in those Georgian country houses of which Pemberley was one and Chatsworth, which we were talking about, was sort of one of the grandest of them all. But then they were the ones that became terrible white elephants by 1900. (laughs) and were turned into girls' boarding schools and lunatic asylums. And a lot of them, particularly in the 1930s, were just pulled down. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1960s, they began to be bought by the National Trust. And suddenly, you know, you can go there and visit them. But the other thing that comes out of this, and we have to think about with Darcy, is there was a big mystique of the squire and the landowner and the benevolent landowner And in some cases, it was definitely true. This was the man who he looked after all his tenants. He used to have his big celebrations, particularly if they had a wedding in the family or an heir was born and they'd all be feasted and oxen would be roasted (laughs) and all the tenants and all the villagers would be fed by the squire and he'd invite all his neighbours and they'd have wonderful speeches. Some of them even had sort of annual events on the rent day when all the farmers came to pay their rent and then there was a huge party for them afterwards. But even more, part of this mystique of the benevolent squire was that they acted for the country. Most of them acted as justices of the peace who were, in fact, the lowest level of magistrates. They were the ones who dealt with petty crime and handed out all the sentences. Mm -hmm. You know, that's Mr Rushworth. He's so proud of his zeal after poachers. Mm. Uh, That's because he's a justice of the peace. Another thing they would do, they'd sort out small disputes over boundaries or whose pig it was. So some of them did that and some of them did it well and some of them were dreadful. They were just trying to get as much rent out of their tenants as they could. They wouldn't spend any money on their properties. But you also had the ideal ones. And these are the ones, by and large, that Jane Austen deals with. Obviously, Mr Knightley is one, probably Mr Bennett, certainly Mr Darcy, and he takes responsibility, in a sense, from people right up at the top of the tree 
like Wickham's father, who's been a good servant to him, so he looks after his family, probably right down to anyone living in the village who's worked even on one of the farms. Mm. Because another thing they were sort of expected to do and supposed to contribute to were all these sort of charities and quite a lot of them were directed against the villagers, not the tenant farmers, who were mm-hmm. also in the next century getting richer and richer. But the day labourers... Because, yeah, the housekeeper at Pemberley, when Mrs Gardner says that Mr Darcy Senior was an excellent man, the housekeeper says his son will be just like him, just as affable to the poor. Yes, that's that sort of thing. And they would know them, and, and this is what Elizabeth would have spent her time on once she was married to Darcy. There are a whole lot of schemes for improving things. There are ideas of model houses. If you remember in um, Middlemarch, Dorothea is very keen on on model houses for the villagers. And then another thing that started happening around 1800 was they were starting to introduce education for the villagers. They were starting to try and get literacy going. In 1813, this society had been formed in London and they started organising schools in all these different parishes. They were always funded by the squire and often supervised by him and particularly by the women in his family. Apart from that, they also started to do things like looking after the sanitation, digging village wells if they thought they needed them. Mm. And then they did a lot of cottage visiting. I mean, once Elizabeth was living at Pemberley, she would have spent quite a lot of time when she was there going round the cottages in the various villages, getting to know the people there, getting to sort of help them if they were in, in need. I mean, after all, Lady Catherine has done that. I was going to say, that sounds like the better side of what Lady Catherine does, of going out and scolding all the villagers into... And it, when it says she was not in the commission of the peace, what that means is she was not a justice of the peace like mm. the men, but she mm. did an awful lot of that sort of chasing up petty crime and that sort of thing, mm. or disputes and so on. And if you remember, I think Emma is doing some cottage visiting at some stage, mm. but by the time Jane Austen's writing her second set of novels, that's very much the case. So with the film adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, the 1940 film with Bria Garson and Laurence Olivier, it doesn't have Pemberley at all. Georgiana Darcy doesn't appear. Elizabeth gets the news about Lydia when she returns home from Hunsford and Mr Darcy turns up there just after that and instead of the letter, he just gives a brief pressy of what's happened with Wickham. So it's much more compressed. Yes. Oh, no, that's interesting. Perhaps the difference is if it was made in Hollywood, mm. whereas by the time you come to the, the later ones, what they've got is all these wonderful houses which are now being looked after by the National Trust, mm. all of which Pemberley can be chosen from. Yes, and that was actually something I was going to say, in fact. I looked up where they were all filmed because they kind of get bigger and bigger as the budgets for these productions get bigger, I think. So the 1981 with David Rintoul and Elizabeth Garvey, that was done at Renishaw Hall in Derbyshire. Compared to some of the others we see, it was relatively modest. It is in Derbyshire. It did look like the lawns needed mowing a bit. Um, By the time you get to 1995 with Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth, 
They yeah. actually used a couple of different locations for that, but the exterior was Lime Park in Cheshire, and it's significantly bigger. But then in, in 2005, they go bigger again because for 2005, they've actually got Chatsworth House. And they use that for the exteriors and also for the interior for the grand staircase and for the sculpture gallery. And so, yeah, as we were saying, Chatsworth House is one that some people argue was the basis of Pemberley. But looking at it, it really does seem incredibly large and grand. And I believe Chatsworth House was also used for the TV series made of the book Death Comes to Pemberley. And... The other thing is with the interiors in 2005, it's so much grander. So in 1980 and 1995, again, you have Elizabeth walking through and seeing the portrait of Mr. Darcy. And in each case, obviously, they've commissioned a portrait of the actor, but it's more or less like it's described in the book. I don't know whether the 2005 version was trying to distinguish itself from the 1995 version, but what you have in this is that they walk into this gallery of classical statuary. Then the end of it, there's a bust of Mr. Darcy. There's no portrait. It's a bust in white marble like all the others, which really seems very, very un-Mr. Darcy to have his bust in the same gallery as all this classical statuary. Particularly but, if he didn't have his father and his grandfather there, yes. Yes, well, maybe they were there and Elizabeth just didn't look at them, but it seemed like the only ones you saw, the things you saw were the classical stuff and Mr. Darcy. Maybe they just wanted to take advantage of the fact that Chatsworth House has this wonderful sculpture gallery. Yes. And in fact, I found the Pemberley scenes in 2005 really quite disappointing because they just went so far away from what it is in the book. What happens is that Elizabeth has been walking around with her aunt and uncle and the housekeeper. Then she wanders off and... She's wandering through the house on her own. She looks through a door and there's Georgiana playing the piano and Mr. Darcy arrives and hugs Georgiana and then they look through the door and see Elizabeth is watching them and then he comes outside and they talk and most of the dialogue isn't from the book. And then apparently the gardeners have just gone off back to the inn without Elizabeth because she walks back to the inn herself. So I just found that all very unconvincing. Yes, it's not just that it was different from the book. I really didn't think it was as good as the scene Jane Austen gave us. With 1918 and with 1995, they both have the encounter happening outside as it does in the book. But whereas I was saying earlier that, you know how in the book, it's just tacked on at the end of a paragraph that unexpectedly Mr. Darcy walks around the corner. Yes. And you should almost miss it if you're reading carelessly. In both of these, it's actually telegraphed. So with the 1981... I mentioned that when he goes to Hunter Parsonage to propose, he's got a dog with him and he, he got the dog to sit and wait outside and there was a shot of the dog's face. But what happens at Pemberley is they're outside and suddenly the dog comes around the hedge. So Elizabeth actually gets some warning that Mr. Darcy is probably going to follow the dog, which he does. Yes. Um, and the scene is closer to how it is in the book. But again, I commented after the letter or while she was reading the letter, there was this voiceover in a monologue by Elizabeth. And you get that even more of the trip to Pemberley. She's articulating the things that Jane Austen says she's thinking. So it sort of is Jane Austen's words, but it just feels like they feel like they're having to spell it out for the audience. It yes. just felt quite artificial. Yes. But another really interesting thing with the 1981 that they picked up on from the book that none of the others did, just before Mr. Darcy arrives, 
Mr. Gardner and Mrs. Gardner are actually having a debate about when the house might have been built. And that, of course, fits in with that almost throwaway bit in the same paragraph where it says that Mr. Gardner was speculating on the age of the house just before Darcy walks around the corner. So I, I did think it was nice they picked up on that. But of course, probably the, the single most famous scene from probably all the adaptations has to be the scene in 1995 of Darcy coming back to Pemberley. And yes. this one is telegraphed far, far more than it is in 1980 because intercut with Elizabeth going to Derbyshire and then walking around Pemberley, you've had a scene of Darcy in London having a fencing lesson. Then you see him on a horse coming to Pemberley. Then again, oh. intercut with Elizabeth going through the house. You see him arriving at this lake. You see him jumping into the lake and going for a swim. Then sort of the big scene is him walking up from the lake with a wet shirt and he comes suddenly into sight of Elizabeth. In spite of it being so incredibly unsubtle and over the top, what I think it does really capture and encapsulate is the incredible embarrassment they feel as they unexpectedly bump into each other. You don't get that so much in 1980. You get it a bit, but because it's much more reserved, you don't quite get that sense of extreme embarrassment on both sides. Whereas in 1995, you completely get the embarrassment. So <laughs> as I said, it is the most well-known moment. I believe when the Radio Times had a photo of that as a poster, it was one of the most sold-out copies of the Radio Times. And I seem to remember back when I was on the Jane Austen listserv, someone commented that they wrote to the Radio Times to ask if they could buy a back copy of that. And the Radio Times just sent her the poster. They didn't even send the whole magazine because they knew that was what she would be after. <laughs> I also seem to remember the Jane Austen Society of Australia saying that, you know, they'd started and they were reasonably small, but people were joining. And then Mr. Darcy jumped into the lake and um, their membership boomed. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, one thing, you look at it and he's there and he gets off his horse and he's sitting by the side of the lake thinking, and then he just jumps into the lake and goes swimming fully clothed, which is kind of silly. Not very much what was happening at that actual period. That was the time when... Most male bathing was nude. I yes. mean, they had particular places in the Thames at Oxford where mm. these were the nude bathing places and the women used to sort of close their eyes as they went hunting past. <laughs> their clothes were expensive. They didn't wash easily. <laughs> you know, it, it's not sensible to, to leap straight into the water in expensive clothes. Quite a few years ago, I went to the museum in Bath and they were having an exhibition of costumes from the Jane Austen films and I listened to the audio guide and I can't remember who was talking it might even have been Colin Firth saying that you know it was just him and the horse and the lake and he really should have stripped off completely but because the filmmakers wanted an underwater scene and they couldn't have him completely nude in the underwater scene so they decided rather than have him just strip off to his breeches or just strip off to underwear if they even wore un underwear then. It made more sense he to have him go in underwear, yes. Yeah. It Just made enough. more sense to have him go in fully clothed than it did to have him go in half stripped off and half not stripped off. But the other thing that I just came across recently on the internet is that apparently a lot of National Trust houses actually have a no nudity clause oh, if, right. if you're using them. So 
<laughs> so that might also have been the reason. But yeah, I, I agree. I'm, some... I'm sure the National Trust would have waived it <laughs> in that case. Another nice thing you get in 1995 is Georgiana they try to make her as close to the Georgiana of the book as possible, whereas the 2005 Georgiana is quite different. But you do have this lovely scene of Elizabeth encouraging Georgiana to play the piano. Yes. Oh, all of them open with shots of Elizabeth and the gardeners driving through Derbyshire. But uh, again, the 1980 version seems like they didn't even have the budget for good Derbyshire countryside, whereas by 2005, they're getting spectacular Derbyshire countryside. The only other one I want to talk about briefly was the web series modernisation Lizzie Bennett Diaries. Part of her graduate course, she's shadowing a couple of companies. And the episode just before the one week break over Christmas, she says, so next time I'll be talking to you from Pemberley Digital. And then Charlotte looks absolutely horrified and then it finishes. And then the next episode starts at Pemberley Digital, which is a web digital company. And she says, yes. As Charlotte and the rest of the internet told me, this is Mr. Darcy's company, which I did not realise at the time, but I couldn't get out of it. So I thought, but... Oh, but neat. I think that that's quite a neat way of, of dealing with it, isn't it? Yeah. And because it's an amazing company in a nice setting with great equipment and motivated staff, it really has the impact of visiting somewhere very, very impressive. But the other interesting thing of having the break there is... In the original publication, where it was in three volumes, the second volume ends with the line to Pemberley they were to go. So it ends just after they decided to go to Pemberley and then volume three starts where they're actually paying the visit to Pemberley. So I thought that was a nice little matching up of the time frame in the web series and the breakup in the book. The other thing I wanted to talk about with Lizzie Bennett Diaries is how it deals with that delayed information. I said earlier that it's a slightly creaky plot that Jane's first letter has gone astray, so Elizabeth gets them back to back. Well, in Lizzie Bennet Diaries, her phone has been playing up, so she's just got a new phone, and she's sitting there talking to Darcy while the new phone is booting up, and then suddenly she gets all these text messages from Charlotte, and that's why she's getting the news right when Darcy is sitting there. And I'll talk next time about exactly how the modernisations deal with the Lydia plot. Since we did the last episode, I've been sent a link to a YouTube video that has episode five of the 1967 black and white version with Celia Bannerman and Lewis Flander in it. The episodes in that are only about 25 minutes long and this episode covers the letter and then also the visit to Pemberley. The way they deal with the letter is literally not to have it at all. It starts out looking like you're going to have it. You have the scene of Elizabeth encountering Darcy outside, but then instead of handing her the letter, he says that he has something he has to tell her and he, he insists that she hear him. So they go back inside and, and then it's all a dialogue between them. A lot of text from the letter is included, but there's to and fro between them about it, which again is another way of dramatising the letter. But there's a lot more detail in it than there was in, say, the 1940 version. Oh, right. Interesting, yeah. You've been listening to Reading Jane Austen with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be doing chapters 47 to 52 of Pride and Prejudice. 
The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and the summarise in a sentence concept was adapted from E.L. Konigsberg's book Silent to the Bone. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.